Good morning. Uh, that was pretty awesome, wasn't it? Um, and, and just so, because I know some might not have been able to find a seat and sat in the lobby. Um, it, it, there are a few seats on the, on the front row. We are working towards going back to three services. I know summer's kind of crazy with everybody in and out of town, um, but we're, we're working towards three services again. So just rest assured, and this is more for your friends who are not here that you need to invite uh, than for you. You have a seat, uh, but if you're looking around and going, how would I invite anybody? We're, we're trying to make space for that. And so, but we're glad you're here this morning. That was incredible. Um, I love, and I hope that you talk about this with your children when you go home today. They led us in worship. Uh, they weren't singing to us, but they were leading us, um, and I just find that so beautiful that these little men and women of God um, are leading their parents and grandparents uh, and fellow uh, followers of Christ, and maybe some of you who are seeking, who need to be challenged by those little hearts, um, they were leading us in worship. And, and so uh, I would really encourage you to just push that into them, that, man, you led us so well today. Um, really teaching them, leaning into the fact that they are little men and women of God uh, and that God has a plan for them and desires to use them, and, and he did today. And so um, that is just so beautiful. We're walking through the book of Philippians together. We're in chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 12. We're going to focus heavily on the first couple of verses, uh, but we'll read in just a few moments all the way to verse 30. And uh, so 12 through 30, Philippians chapter 2, as we just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Philippians while you're turning there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. God, thank you so much for this morning, and thank you for the opportunity to gather together and to worship you. And God, I just pray that you would uh, just move powerfully in each of our hearts. There are so many things that are going on in our lives, and so many things, and distractions, and temptations, and that could pull us away from you and what truly matters. And Lord, this morning, I pray that you would just give each of us a moment of, of just rest and and, and of all distractions being taken away, and that we would just hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray that every single one of our hearts, minds, souls would hear your words to us this morning, that you would speak directly to our hearts. And Lord, I know that there might be some of us who are searching, who are, are, are seeking out what, what the meaning of life is and who they are. And God, I pray that you would reveal to them that everything that they long for is found in you. And for those of us that know and love you, would you challenge us and encourage us? Would we feel your truth and love this morning, press into our hearts and transform our lives, that we would live more like you and we would live deeper for you, that we would have more joy in everything that we are created to do and in the, the natural and daily rhythms of our life. And God, we lift up the church of our city that everywhere that your word is proclaimed, you would add unto your church today, that you would build up your church. We pray that God is a result of what you do today all around our city that our city as a whole would grow closer to you today. That we would go out in a, in, in, in a deeper passion for your mission this week as we, as we hit the coffee shops and the gyms and the workplaces. And so, Lord, would you move in us in power? Would we hear from you? And would you do what only you can do to transform our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. As we get into Philippians chapter 2, Paul gets really pastoral here. And uh, he loves this church. He cares for this church. Uh, he wants them to experience the joy that, that he has felt that he's really been revealing. If you remember, he's in prison. He's, he's most of his adult life that he's been on mission. He's been in prison. He's been beaten. He's been persecuted for his faith. And yet he's writing because of uh, uh, the church in Philippi checking up on him. They hear that he's in prison. They send Epaphroditus to check on him. 
And all Paul wants them to know is the joy, the contentment, the life that he has in Jesus. That it is far surpassing to anything in the world that could possibly give us joy or just give us a small glimpse of the happiness and joy that only God can truly give us and fill us in. And he wants them to know this and to understand this as he writes this because he cares about him. A lot of times Paul, he can just be, he can feel like he's pretty blunt. And, and everything that ultimately he says, uh, he says in love. And so that's where a lot of us that feel like maybe we're like Paul because we're really blunt people, um, Paul actually also does it in love. And so that's something some of us miss. Um, but everything that he says, he does boldly, but he does lovingly. And here he wants to be a good pastor to the people. He cares for them. He loves them as they have cared and loved for him. And he writes this letter so that they will know and understand, because Paul cares most in his life about the gospel that that Jesus lived, that God came and lived perfectly, that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin, and he rose from the grave to overcome sin and death. And by placing our faith in him, we are saved, we have salvation, and we're brought back into the community with God we are created to have that sin separated us from. And by God's work and God's work alone through faith, we are made new. We are made whole. It transforms our hearts. It transforms our desires. We look at life different. We look at um, the things of the world different. We can have content hearts being brought into community with God that we were created to have and in him have everything that we long for. So when we look at the things of the world and we have desires in the world, we're not looking at those things as an opportunity to gain something or out of a fear of losing something, but out of a way to reveal the fullness that we have in him. We look at life completely differently. And Paul wants everyone to know, this is what I live for. I'm willing to die for this, that you would know this joy, this contentment. And so he wants the people to know the gospel and that he is centered around the gospel above all other things. And we get that all through this letter. And as I was thinking about this this past week, this question just kept popping up in my mind. What am I centering my life around? And I I just want to ask you that question as we, as we get into this text this morning, what is your life centered around? What makes you who you are? What would somebody who knows you very well say, that's what makes this person tick? And if they don't have that, they don't have themselves. If they don't have that to pursue, then they don't know what hope looks like. What is it that makes you who you are? I've really wrestled with that this week and, and come to this this kind of idea of, man, would I rather, and I don't, don't ask me why this is where my mind went, okay, but it, it immediately went to, because I love the things of the world. I do. I love the beauty of the world. I love the things that God has created. I love experiencing it. I love traveling. I love all of the things that God has blessed us to give him glory with, and I love my wife, and I love my kids. All three of them were just up here singing, and it was all that I could do to not cry when I got up here. Because my, my just-turned-five-year-old little boy actually did everything. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so it was just incredible. And so, um, so I love my kids. I love my wife. And this question hit me like a, a ton of bricks. And I just thought to myself, man, would I rather have five minutes with my kids and my wife of complete just just gospel presentation where they understand that the depths of their souls that leads to their salvation, which leads to an eternity of worshiping God with them? 
or an entire life of godless interaction where we have just time after time, trip after trip together, but a godless eternity. What am I living for? What is most important to me? What makes you who you are? What is most important to you? This is a question that we need to wrestle with. Is what we live for worth living for? Does it actually give us life or is it taking life? This is where Paul is. And so as he writes this text, he he wants us to understand in this letter where contentment, where joy, where life comes from. And listen, I know that, that some of you, you don't even have a category for what I just said. Like you're looking at me like a complete idiot. Five minutes of talking about Jesus so that your kids will say they believe in Jesus and get baptized so that you can have this imaginary eternity with them rather than a whole lifetime of doing fun things with them but not knowing anything of God, you're an idiot. But let me tell you, My prayer for you, and I'm glad that you're here, but my prayer for you is that God would open your eyes to see that you were created for him, that you were created in his image, and the way that life isn't going the way that you want, and the way that joy isn't filling your heart the way that you desire, and the reason that nothing is making you content, and the reason that everything that you are chasing is not accomplishing what you want it to is because you were made for him. You were made for him. And today, my prayer is that you will see that this God is the God you were created for. That when I ask the question, what do you live your life for? That God would be the answer and that out of that would come a joy that's untouchable as it is for Paul as we read in this letter. That even while he is in prison and he is facing death and being beaten and persecuted, we realize that he rejoices, that he is thankful, that he has joy, that he has contentment. And what that tells us is joy and contentment does not come in the world. And if you chase it, it's folly. But joy comes into the world through Jesus Christ living and dying and rising so that by faith we can be saved by his grace and know who we are created to be. And so as Paul writes this letter to the church expressing the joy that he has that cannot be touched, it's unshakable, it's un, it's un, uh, it can't be touched by anything in the world no matter what happens situationally. It allows him to see everything in that upside-down way. I'm content, and now I'm revealing. I'm not discontent and needing and wanting and fearing. And that when we look at that in the way, in, through the eyes of, of the natural world, it looks upside-down. But ultimately speaking, when we understand who God is, it's actually right side up. We understand that we were not created to build our own kingdoms, to become what we lack and what we are not, to fill the glory void that we were created to give glory and honor to God in everything that we did. But rather than doing that, we walked away in rebellion and our sin separates us from him and we begin to try to to become what we were created to be outside of the one who created us to know him and to be everything that we were created to be in him. But rather, when we come to faith, we see everything kingdom down. It's, it's God's way. It's God's kingdom. It's his salvation. It's his grace. And these things begin to infiltrate the life that we live. And it seems abnormal to us, but the things that seem normal to us are abnormal to God. And when we see him and we understand him, then it begins to become something that looks like the right side up way to live. Jesus first. Jesus center. 
And it begins to make sense of everything else in my life. And I begin to have this joy that is untouchable. And so I, I, I pray, I hope that as we've walked through this series so far, if you are a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, that you're growing in that joy. If not, then my prayer for you is that the gospel would click this morning and we would begin to be able to walk out of here knowing where joy actually exists. And so as we get into two, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, we cannot forget that we're dropping into a conversation that's already taking place. We've already covered some things. And Paul, when he wrote this letter, he didn't mean for it to be spread out over eight or ten weeks where we look at chapter 1 and then chapter 2. He did not put chapter 1 and chapter 2. He did not put verses there. This is just a letter to the church. And so we're dropping in on a conversation that Paul has already been building on to this point. And so just really quickly, here's the headline of what we've seen so far. The first thing that Paul has told us is that the pathway to freedom is actually in being enslaved to Christ. That every single one of us lives enslaved to something. Enslaved to the things of the world to give us what they cannot. Or enslaved to Christ because he has created us to be in community with him and to worship him and to give glory to him. But every single one of us worships. Every single one of us places our faith in something. And Paul says this, what feels like very contradictory statement at the very beginning, that the pathway to freedom begins with being a slave to Jesus. That that is what we were created to do. Secondly, we saw that Christ alone brings contentment. And contentment allows us to actually see desires that we have, natural desires that we have in the world in the right way. Because I'm fully content, I don't desire relationship to give me something that I don't already have. So now I don't have to use someone to get something from them. But I can actually selflessly love them because I'm already content and have everything that I need in relationship with God. And so it allows me to see everything differently. So Christ alone brings contentment. Christ transforms our lives at the root which then can begin to bear good fruit. Who we are determines what we do. Christ changes our hearts. He transforms us. He gives us new passions. He gives us new desires, new longings, new wants. We want to honor him. We want to glorify him. And then out of that, we begin to do what he has created us to do. We're going to see a lot of that today. So that when all of this is true, we can image God and his humility because we are whole in him, we do not have to be prideful and arrogant. We don't have to have, be full of self-pity, but we can begin to reveal Christ, image Christ, be like Christ in our communities more and more. And while we have seen all of this kind of fleshed out in the, in the weeks previous, I also know that when we leave this place and when we leave this place every week, it was true in Paul's life, we, we know something, we hear something, we can even believe something, but it's totally different than applying it to our lives. And so there's this great temptation in us to know something, but to not live in its reality. And Paul continues to call us to this truth. That's why he, he keeps saying things like, live in the unity that you have in Christ. Live in the love that you have in Christ to live in the freedom that you have in Christ. He's saying, you have this in Christ, but just because you can have it in Christ, just because you can know it in Christ, just because you believe it in Christ, doesn't mean that you will live in its joy. Doesn't mean that you will participate in who you are. And so Paul continues to call us not to fall into the temptation to live for self once we've been set free from it, 
to live for the things of the world and try to build our own kingdoms once we are brought into the kingdom of God called his child and have everything in him that we were created to have, that we can then go and live that out and, and we begin to experience a joy like no other. And so what we've seen so far is that to know Christ, to be saved in him by his grace and his grace alone, is to have a transformed heart, plus then the expression of who we are in him, the living out of who he has transformed us to be, living out that new heart, those new passions, those new desires, equals God's design for joy. That you can have salvation, and it is absolutely his work and his work alone. But to live in that, there is an effort that we're going to see we put in, even though it is done by God giving us the desire, and it is done through his power. But we are called to walk in that reality. And so the equation for joy that he gives us is salvation in him by grace alone through faith. Living it out, pursuing God, leaning into God, being in community together equals the joy that we can only have in Christ. But the temptation to walk away from that every single day will be very real. Very real. To live for comfort, to to follow your own heart. These are things that we will all be tempted to do. And temptation in our life, it can feel so overwhelming at times, can it not? Just like, I cannot overcome this. And it's so natural for us to give in because the inner lawyer in us just pops up and starts telling us every lie we need to hear to believe that everything that our hearts desire is what we need to do at all times. And certainly today, the only sin is not to follow your own heart. Because without God, listen to me, inner desire is the only guiding star you have. If you walk away from your creator, then where are you to go? What do you follow? What do you pursue? And the only place that you can look is within. And experience then becomes the only teacher that you can trust. What a sad life to live. What a confusing existence that I only know where I'm supposed to go and who I'm supposed to be by looking inward and I have to follow my own heart. And then the only teacher that I can trust is my own experience. Man, that rarely ever will lead us to actual truth. It is a very difficult and confusing and disastrous way to live. But it leads us to the issues that Paul addresses in this text. So yes, sin is real. Temptation is real. And by the way, temptation is not a sin in and of itself. Temptation, the best I can define it, is the ever-present inclination to please self-desire rather than living to please God. And one leads to joy and one doesn't. And it is key to know that when we fall away from the things of God and who he says we are, it doesn't just hurt us. Jesus says we lose ourselves. But when we overcome the temptation by leaning into God and and, and not locating value in self, but in who we are created to be in him, and we don't look to the things of the world, by dying to self and living in Christ, we find life. It's the great paradox of the gospel. It seems so upside down and, 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 and counterproductive, but it is the reality that when we place ourselves in Christ and we die to self, we find life. This is the paradox of the gospel, and real joy comes in overcoming temptation and walking in that paradox, walking in the truth of God. And so Paul lays this out 
for the church in Philippi. And, and we need to know all of that because the first word that we get to in chapter 2, verse 12 is therefore. And so we need to know what it is therefore. Right? And so when you look at verse 12 in Philippians, you see, therefore, my beloved. And what Paul's going to do is go, okay, how do we live in this stuff? Paul's laid out all of these beautiful truths. How do we live in it? How do we obey God? How do we walk in this freedom? How does it affect our everyday life? How do we overcome temptation? How do we reveal God and express him in everything that we are, with everything that we do, with everything that we have? And so that's what Paul begins to address. Look in chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, as soon as we get there, we've already had three words that are going to naturally cause us to check out. I heard the word obey. I heard the word fear. I heard the word trembling. None of those should come in contact with the name Jesus. And so those are very difficult things for us. And Paul almost sounds like he's saying something contradictory there. So we need to spend a little bit of time there. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. I love how Paul always calls it back to God. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling. There's some things that will get in the way and are, are, are clear visual things that are affecting our joy in Christ and where our heart and what the root of our heart is. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life that is in the day of Christ. I may uh, be proud, and this is a good proud of of what the people of God are doing through the power of God, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, it says it's worth all of my life, Upon the sacrificial offerings of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And we're going to read 19 through 30. We're not going to have time to really get into it, but there is one thing that we'll see here. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So we need help with this. We're seeing a community aspect. So that I too may be... uh, cheered by you, uh, the news of you. So Epaphroditus was sent to me to get understanding of what's going on with me. I'm going to send Timothy to you, and Epaphroditus is actually going to come back too, and he's going to bring you this letter that we're reading. For I know that like him, you will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests. He's talking about other believers, not those of Jesus Christ. So Timothy is pursuing Jesus, but you know Timothy's proven worth, How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to you soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust that the Lord, that this shortly, I myself will be able to come also. I have thought it necessary to send you to Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and messenger and minister to me in need. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near death, but God had mercy on him and did not only... Not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, I want to say one thing really quickly here, and that's that in the midst of Paul writing this letter about the joy that we have in Christ, the contentment that we have in Christ, the life that we have in Christ, he's rejoicing, he's thanksgiving in everything that's happening to him. He is also experiencing the emotion of sorrow. 
And I want you to understand that there is difficult things, there are trials, there are sufferings in the world that will bring sorrow, that will bring pain. It's okay to feel those things, but the joy of Christ can always overcome them, and the joy that we have in Christ is always greater than the sorrow. We are not ruled by our sorrow and pain and suffering. We are, we are ruled by who we are in Jesus, and that brings us joy even in our pain, sorrow, and suffering. And I just want to point that out because Paul says that here. And then verse 29, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what is lacking in your service for me. So really quickly, look back at verse 12. I want us to see something here because I mentioned at the very beginning that Paul can sometimes come across very kind of boldly and and maybe sometimes even consider a little bit brash. But what he says here, he's saying all of it with the, the undertone of love, the characteristic of love flowing through. And I've grown to really like the way that Paul calls the people of the church his beloved. I didn't understand that a lot before. It just kind of seemed weird to me. It seemed a little awkward. It, it seems a little too lovey-dovey or fake. It's, it's disingenuous. And, and so it just was kind of weird. I would just kind of skip over those things. But I've grown to love. I don't know if it's because I'm a girl dad or what it is, but my, God has softened my heart. And I've begun to kind of really appreciate. And, and I feel like it's, it's crucial for us to understand When Paul calls the people his beloved, he's saying, I love you. I care for you. Anything that I'm about to say for you, it's coming out of a a passion for you to know truth, a, a longing for you to have understanding. I love you. I care for you. And when I call you to hard things, it's out of love. This is a real love. It's truth with love. It's truth with compassion. Truth with care. These are the things that God is calling us to. And to show love like this is such a great way to show the genuine transformation that Christ gives to us when we place our faith in him. That he really is at work in a way that that we wouldn't see in the world. That we begin to have a love for people that we wouldn't generally have a love for. That we have an affection for people that we might not even know. That we have compassion on people when it doesn't actually do anything for us to have compassion on them. There's a love that comes in Jesus that affects the way that we live that doesn't come in anything else. There's a love that we experience in him that doesn't come outside of knowing Jesus. And and I just want to say to us, church, because, listen, I am not, okay, and for those of you who know me well, you know this, I am not very emotional. Um, I do not say I love you to anyone outside of my wife and kids, it just is not. Like when the, when the L word starts coming out of my mouth to anybody other than Rachel or my kids, I, it just, I just start stuttering. Like it's just, it's really hard, right? When it starts coming up, I just don't, I don't know how to say it, right? And so I'm not the person. And so I'm right there with you on this. But church, we need to be a people, if Christ is working in us and transforming us, that reveal his love. There is no more genuine way to reveal that Jesus is at work, that Jesus saves, that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Lord, that he is worth all of our lives than actually loving in a way that you cannot otherwise love outside of him. It is the greatest expression of salvation. And and so we tend to kind of think, man, I, I don't know if I can do that. And I was so challenged on this this week, and I need to... I need to tell this story quickly, I know, but I feel like it's, it's beneficial for us. 
I met another pastor this week who pastors on the east side of Winston, and he's planting a church here the next year. And so, of course, my antennas just went straight up. And, you know, I was like, hey, man, yeah, we, we planted just a couple of years ago, and we're all about church plants. We love church plants. We love the church of our city. For us, it is God's kingdom, the church, and then Redemption Hill Church. We wanted to see a movement of God across our city. We, we long for the church of our city to be more healthy, for lostness to decrease. Anything that we can do for you, you let us know, and we'll do it if we can. And I just wanted him to know, man, we are for you. We care about you. And he shared his vision with me. And I was just like, man, we are so in line. We need to partner some more. And so we exchanged information. And then he caught me with something. All right. And so when I was saying bye to him and I initiated, I, I uh, went up and shook, uh, initiated by shaking his hand. And I had no plan for anything, anything affectionate to come out of my mouth. None. And it didn't. Because when I shook his hand, he looked right at me, and in the most genuine way I've ever heard, he said, I love you. And here's what I did. <laughs> I'll, I'll call you later, man. Like, I had no, like, I felt like an eighth grader with a pretty girl talking to him. Like, I had no category for what to say back to this guy. But I got in my car, and I immediately sat there, and I just sat back, I put my phone down, and I just thought to myself, I want to be like him. I want the love of Christ to be revealed through me. I want people to know that I love and care about them because Jesus loved and cared about me. I want them to know that I've been made new, that I have new desires, that I have new passions, that I have a new heart, that I have uh, a new longing in my life to reveal the love of Christ in every situation and relationship that I come into contact with. And so let me just challenge you. As Paul says, beloved, don't just skip over that word. It's an important word. Because if we are in Jesus, follower of Christ, if we are in Jesus, we are to be known by our love. We are to be known by our compassion, first for one another and then for those in the world. That we care, that we love, that we are for And and I just want to challenge us on that, especially the men, because I know for us, We tend to think in our world that being a man is all about consuming what I can get, what I have, what I can eat, what I drink, um, how I'm perceived, my reputation. And it's all about just consuming everything that God has created us for him to to reveal him with. And we just want to consume it for ourselves. And somehow that's becoming and being a man. And it's just we, we are like that because we're insecure and full of pride. And so I just want to say, Paul, if I can say this in today's world, Paul is a man's man. He's hard and he's tough, but he knows how to love. He knows how to live out the truth in love. And so he cares. And even though he is tough and strong, he is also gentle and he is tender. And he knows the difference between the two. And so listen to me, especially the men, all of us, we need to be loving and revealing the love of Christ. Men, you need to get over yourselves. I need to get over myself. We need to be strong in the truth. We need to stand firm in the truth. We don't need to give in the truth. We need to stand up for what God has called us to stand up for. And we need to be tough and we need to be strong in that. But we also need to be tender and compassionate and loving towards our families. Towards the people around us. We want people to know the truth, but we want them to feel the love that the truth brings. And so men, men are able to do this, and Paul is able to do this. Yes, he's tough. He doesn't, want, he doesn't mind dying for what he believes in. 
but he reveals a love. He encourages and he challenges. And therefore, because he does this, he's able to say hard things and the people receive it in love. And so when he says, therefore, beloved, because of Christ's work, because of his grace, because of his transforming power, because of his calling on our lives to to live out what he has called us to live out, he says, obey, obey. Now, that word hopefully has gotten even a little softer just in the time that we've talked since the first time that I read it to the time that I mentioned it there. But there will be temptation in your life, and there's probably temptation even now when I say it, to just check out, to not want to hear the word obey. Because if we're looking inward and we're not finding our life in Christ and he's not the center of everything, then again, we are the only guiding star. Our heart is the only point of reference. Our desires are the only thing that we know that we can look towards. And our experience is the only thing that we can trust. And so we will look inward at ourselves and we will truly believe that I know better than everybody else. I am better, and I know truer, and I see things more clearly. And, and if everybody is looking inward at themselves, then nobody could possibly have a truth for me to live by. And the only way that I will actually get what I want is if I make my own rules. And so we begin to push against this idea of obedience. He says, though, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in the present, in my presence, but much more in the absence, continue to obey God, his truth, lean into the word of God. So he doesn't want us just to have this kind of, if you grew up in church, this youth camp experience. I know our our youth are going on a retreat this weekend, and my prayer for them is that they would have an experience of a lifetime that God would radically transform their heart, but it would actually be transformation that leads into life. A whole lot of us have probably been on youth camps where we were ready to go to the mission field in, in some far off place. And then we got back and two days later, we were like, missions? What missions, right? Like, and so that we just had this experiential moment. But God, Paul doesn't want that. He wants true life transformation. If the Holy Spirit is in us, if the gospel is true in us, then there is a life that's transformed. There's a life that's being transformed. He gives us the power to do that as we lean into him. But, but he says, I want you to live in obedience to God, not just while I'm there, not just when you first come to faith, but now and in the future. Because there's a true heart change. There's a genuine new heart that is in you. In the Greek, the word that he uses there is a present progressive. It means keep it up. Like, keep going. You're doing it. Drive towards God. Pursue him. Lean into him. Obey God in everything that he says. Not just now, but also later. And just, um, let me just say it this way because I need to move on. He wants us to understand that we need to, to, to be transformed in a way that transforms our lives every single day in every single way for the rest of our lives, that we live with God at the center. So the question that I asked at the very beginning, what identifies who you are? What makes you who you are? Paul wants us to understand that salvation in Christ is what makes us who we are, and then obedience to him is how it is lived out. This should be a defining characteristic of a life transformed by the gospel. Keep obeying. Keep pursuing. Keep chasing. When things are going good and when things are going bad, when they're hard and when they're easy, because you have been set free from being defined by your circumstances, now you have a truth that infiltrates every circumstance. And if things are going hard, there's a truth that needs to to infiltrate that circumstance in your life and in the lives of those watching you go through something hard 
And if things are going really good, there's a truth that you need to learn in that as you give thanksgiving and praise to God and people around you need to see that you're not finding life in those good things, but life is in Jesus and you're using the good things to give glory to him. So he wants all of our life to be completely transformed. And the way that we walk in that transformation, he says, is to keep a bank, to pursue God at any time of our life. And that is loving, but that's tough. That's difficult for, for us to hear. As I said, we don't like the word obey. We don't like, if you're 90 years old, you don't like the word obey any more than a two-year-old. And we're just as rebellious. Because in our natural pride, if we're honest, as I said, we do think we know everything better than everybody else. And we do have a problem with, with uh, a general authority. Now, we all like rules, and we all have them. We all want everybody to obey and live by our rules. But when it comes to a general authority, our whole culture is, is centered around rebellion. We champion it because it's all about what we long for in our own hearts. So we do like rules, but we, don't, we can't get under this general authority. And even as followers of Jesus, this happens. Think about it. We don't typically wake up in our lives and go, God, I just come to you in prayer this morning, and I just I pray that you would, you would really help me to just live in obedience to everything that you have for me today, in obedience to your word today. If any of us are doing that, please come and see me after the service, because what your prayer probably looks like if you remember to pray is more like, God, give me the desires of my heart today. God, would you help me today with the things that I have on my to-do list? And what we're ultimately saying is, God, would you obey me today? Not, God, would, can I obey you today? And, and, and out of our heart, even as the people of God, this is so evident because naturally, the word obedience just sounds enslaving. It doesn't sound like it's in our best interest. And it happens in the world and in the church. And sometimes I think it happens even more difficultly in the church. And, and sometimes I think we face a kind of more of even an uphill battle because if you're my age or older, I'm at the very top end of the millennials. Um, and so really, I'm not even one, but, but that's kind of where I fall. And if you're my age or older, and, and I know I'm generalizing here, but I think it'll help us, you probably grew up in church if you grew up in the South, okay? Probably. And you probably grew up in a church that leaned towards a tendency of legalism. There was this big movement for, for morality, and this is the way it needs to, and so everything was about how it looked, Right? And so you either became self-righteous or you weren't very good at doing all the right things. So you thought everybody was hypocritical and there was just this big you know, self-righteous, hypocritical like thing going on. And there was this tendency towards legalism. And so for many of you, you kind of were either really good at it and you became a little bit self-righteous and you kind of maybe realized the gospel truth a little bit later and now you're still kind of a recovering self-righteous person, Pharisee. Um, and then for some of us, you, you kind of rebelled altogether against the church because you just weren't very good at doing the things. You didn't feel like that was really the way that the gospel was teaching. And so maybe you left the church. But a whole lot of us, when we hear the word obey, we have a lot of baggage and things that kind of creeps up into our lives. And we're just like, ooh, is he talking about legalism? Is he, is he talking about me, wor like, working for my salvation? Now, on the other side of that, we have a whole other problem for the people who are younger than me, and especially my kids. 
in that age bracket. And a lot of it is as a result uh, to this. But for the last couple of decades, we've been kind of finding ourselves in this seeker-sensitive type of movement. Um, and some pastors kind of got together and they just kind of thought, you know, there's a lot of baggage with Christianity today. And so what we need to begin teaching is just Jesus loves you. Give your life to him. He forgives you. He is for you. By his grace, you are saved. And when you die, you will go to heaven. And that was kind of the extent and the content of the gospel. And everything else that came out of Jesus' mouth is just optional. But these are the things that really matter. And so when we start hearing things like lordship and obedience and God being God and him being sovereign and him calling us to certain things, it's like, whoa, 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 I heard a pastor say, just put your faith in Jesus, pray this prayer, get baptized, you will go to heaven when you die, you can do whatever else you want, because I was never told to do anything different than that, and that sounds a whole lot better to me. And as a result, we kind of have come up with this generation, especially for my kids growing up, where in the home we have much more of a liberal Christianity than a legalistic Christianity. And so there's some truths that we want to believe. There's some things that we want to hold on to. We do want our kids to pray the prayer and receive Jesus, but we don't really want our kids to like go all out for him and to get crazy about doing the things. And, and so it reflects in the way that we believe. We want to leave room, even in Scripture, to say, you know what, this is traditional. And so we don't really talk about biblical anymore. We talk about traditional and so that we can kind of keep it open-handed and we can change it if the culture changes. And, and we want our kids to believe in Jesus, but we don't really want them to follow Jesus. And, and we're growing up, our kids, in a culture like that where it's all about what the culture says, and we just add a little bit of Jesus to it. And so the word obey just either gives us flashbacks or it makes us flinch because it's just so countercultural today. And so in the church, we have a really hard time with it. We have a hard time with it in the world. We have a hard time with it in the church. So we have legalism and licentiousness. Just do whatever it is that you want to believe in Jesus. Neither one of them understand the gospel. Neither one of them understand grace and work. The truth is we are saved by grace alone through faith, and then we do have new hearts and new desires and new passions and new longings to honor God. That's what we were created for, and when we begin to understand what we were created for, then we begin to live out what we were created to do, and that's where joy actually is. That's where the most joy for us exists when we're doing what we're created to. When we're in community with the God we were created. Now, see, we have this weird idea that if I give my life to Jesus, I'm giving up myself. When in reality, when we rebelled against Jesus, we gave up our true identity. And when we come back to Jesus, we gain who we really are. And by gaining who we really are in him, by his grace, through his work, we can begin to live in the way that we were created to live by grace. And grace changes us because here's the reality. God does not just save you from something bad. It's way better than that. Can I just tell you this morning? It's way, way better than that. God did not just save you from hell. He saved you to something good. He saved you to the life that you're created to live, to the purpose that you're created to have. And grace leads to a new and better obedience, an obedience that actually gives life. Because we're, we're with our creator and where the, the Lord is, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. So listen, don't fall into the temptation not to live for God and to live for self. Don't reject your true identity for a false one. Don't try to seek something that God has purchased for you. Place your faith in him and live in him and live in obedience to him. 
Because the opposite of legalism and, and, and liberalism or licentiousness is not anything other than holiness. That's the opposite. That we actually know who we are in Christ and in him we are made new. Listen, God made you. God made me. He made you and me with a purpose. And he places that purpose in us. And by grace, he tells us how to live. And so for the one who is not a believer in this place or watching online this morning, the reason that we have the law of God, Paul says, is like a tutor to you. You begin to understand in your life that you cannot become what you ultimately desire to be. You can't even live in obedience to your own rules. And when we don't, because we're made in the image of God and God's word is, is his image is written on our heart. When we don't do the things we know we're supposed to do, we feel guilt and shame. And that guilt and shame is a grace from God to point to you that you need him. Now, you don't have to live in that guilt and shame because Jesus paid for that guilt and shame by dying on the cross for your sin. He rose from the grave to overcome sin and death so that you can place your faith in him and be brought back into community with him. And you can know who you are and you can have your true identity in him and in him alone. You can know what you were created to do. And so for the believer, the commands of God are not God looking down and going, hey, all of these people that I created, I don't really like that they're not giving me the attention that I want. So they look like they're having fun and I'm going to tell them not to do those things and I'm going to tell them to do those things because I'm jealous for their attention. That's not what he does. He created us for something good. We did something in rebellion bad and he's calling us to what he created us to do. And when we do what we are created to do, we find joy. We're made to give him glory. And we're made to have tons of fun doing it. A lot of laughter, a lot of love, a lot of unity. Because in Christ, we can be naked and unashamed. That means every single one of you in this room, I know something you want. You want to be fully known and fully loved. And God fully knows you and fully loves you. We often say that you, cannot, you can only be loved to the extent that you are actually known. And God's the only one that knows you and will actually love you. And in him, you can have what you were created to have in community with him. And you can begin to live as he has created you to live. Because Jesus came. And for believers, we can now walk in the freedom of his commands, his law. It's joy. It's, it's a freedom from guilt and from shame. And we desire to honor him. Listen, obedience is not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing depending on what you give your obedience to. And as I said, every single one of us obeys something. We all worship something. And the question is whether or not it can give you life. So listen, I need to wrap all of this up in a pretty bow. He then goes on to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is so important because if we just read this, you might think Paul just contradicted himself. He said grace, salvation is by grace alone, and now he's going to work out your salvation. What in the world? And what Paul says here is not work for your salvation, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling by the power of God. So it's God who saves us by his grace then it is though we lean into him, we put effort into growing in him and understanding and living in the reality of who he has made us to be. He is the one that gives us the ability and the want to do it. And then Paul says, it is him who gives us the power to do what we want to do. 
So see, it's God's power, it's his spirit working in us that does all of this, but he does want us to lean into him and with fear and trembling, obey God. And just let me say to you this morning, the church has fallen off the wagon in America when it comes to fear of God. We have no idea what that actually means. We have no idea how good it is, but you will never live in obedience to God unless you have a healthy fear of God. It is a fear that comes out of love. And so it's not a fear of him leaving you or him forsaking you. God promises that he will never do that. But it's a fear of, I know him. I know what I'm created to do. I know who I'm created to be. I know where my joy is, my contentment is. And if I'm walking away from him, there is a fear and awe, a love and awesomeness, a beauty about God that I want to be close to, but I fear getting away from. And I also fear being so close to it because it's so magnificent. And without that healthy fear that comes out of a love that he has for us and we can have for him, then we will never actually live in obedience to him. But I love how he says that the fear that we have or the work that we do comes through God's power. The word that he uses there is energon, right? And it sounds super like transformish or something, right? But it's where we get our word energy. And so what Paul is saying is, this is, this is really, and I want to close up with this, this is where the tension falls, right? Salvation is by grace alone through faith. We do nothing but bring our sin to the table. Jesus does all the work for us. It's he who saves. We lean into him, and so there's always this question of what's our responsibility and God's responsibility? What is his work or our work or our hands through his power? Like, how does all of that work together? So salvation is by Christ alone, and then we lean in, and there is a responsibility and an effort that needs to be put in to, to grow in him, to live in that reality, but it's by his power that we do it. If you're doing it by your own power, then you will become legalistic, you will become a Pharisee, or you will become licentious and walk away. You can't do it. And so here's our effort in God's responsibility and our responsibility. I'll sum it up like this. I have in my house uh, like 10 trees that are like over 100 feet tall. They scare me to death. I'm constantly fearful that they're going to fall in my house. Right? Now, they're healthy, they're good, they're beautiful, uh, so don't come and offer to take them down for me or anything afterwards. Like, I love them. But I do, I just have this, this feeling in me of like, man, one day I'm going to have to take some of these down. Um, so if you were to give me an ax and you were to say, okay, these trees, they don't look good, they're going to fall in your house, you need to get them down. Like, here's the thing, I will have the desire to get those trees down. I, don't want, I love my house, I don't want them falling on my house. I'll be willing to put in all of the effort to get those trees down. But if you give me an ax, just let me tell you, in my power, they're not coming down. I can't do it. The passion will be there. The desire will be there. I will give all the effort that I possibly have, but I will not in my power be able to do it. And if we're chasing after Jesus in our own power, religiously or irreligiously, to pursue what we are created to have through his work and his work alone, then you're doing it in your own power and you will not find success. You will not find joy. You will not have salvation. Your heart will be not transformed. You will not know how to live. It will be a chore. Here's the other thing, though. If you give me an, uh, a saw, chainsaw, and you said, hey, these trees need to come down because they're going to fall on top of your house, then suddenly I have the desire because I love my house. I have the effort that I'm willing to put in because I have a passion for my home. But now it's not on my power to accomplish the feat, but it is on a, an external power. 
And I can do that. I can easily get those trees down. This is what Paul is saying to us. Salvation is by grace alone. Work it out with fear and trembling. Lean in. God is amazing. He is incredible. He is powerful. There is a love and a fear all coming together. It causes us to want to be close to him, but fear him, yet love him and obey him. And, and, and we need to lean into that, but he's the one that gives us the desire for that. And when we put the effort out of the desire that he gives, he is the one that gives us the power to overcome temptation and to live for him. The power to walk in the freedom that he puts before us. He is the one who provides. And so Paul says, listen, don't let anything get in the way with like grumbling and arguing. Those are things that the world does. And the world is looking at us and they're asking the question, are we going to be transformed by Jesus? Is, does Jesus make a difference in our lives? So don't argue and grumble and complain and, and fight over silly things. Be unified in the gospel truth. And he actually uses three different direct quotes from the Old Testament in verses 14 through 18. And we don't have time to flesh it out this morning, but he directly quotes from them. But he flips. It's, it's Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Daniel. And he flips the Deuteronomy text because the people of God, the Israelites, are called crooked and twisted generations. They spend 40 years in the book of Exodus in the wilderness, unable to go into the promised land because of their grumbling. Then... Paul flips this. He says, don't grumble, don't complain, don't fight. And then he flips the Deuteronomy text to say, you are a righteous people in Christ amongst a wicked and twisted generation that doesn't know Christ. And you are to be a light in that generation. You have been saved. You have been set free so you can be a light. And in Daniel, they talk about Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord. And he says, the Lord is come in us. He's, he's visual in us. He's living and dwelling in us. He's giving us the power to reveal him through the power and the work of the church that he is about doing and the mission that he has given us so we can be a light in a dark place. He's challenging them. Don't let things in the, of the world get in the way of what we're talking about because God has given you the power to be a light in a dark place and the world needs it. He says, we can't do it together. I'm going to send you Timothy and Epaphroditus because we need to walk together in this. We have to be unified in this. But listen to me. The world today, the culture that we live in, they need to see that Jesus transforms lives. They need to see that the church can be a light in a dark place. They need us to stop grumbling and complaining and begin looking to Jesus and by his power, living in obedience to him. They need to see us having a joy that's untouchable by the things of the world. The world is watching and the church needs to wake up. We're at a crossroads right now and especially coming out of the pandemic, the, the church has been pruned. And now it is time to bear fruit, church. It is time to be unified in the gospel. It is time to live in obedience to our God. It is time to love him and fear him. It is time to be on his mission and express him. It is time to reveal the joy that only comes in him. And God has given us a time like this to bear good fruit that many might come to know him. So let me ask you these questions. What is God doing in you right now? Paul says that God is at work in the life of the believer. What is he doing in you right now? What does he want to do through you right now? What does your effort 
by your power need to be shifted into your leaning in and surrendering to his power? What grumbling and arguing do you need to repent of today? What do you need to work out in fear to have a a healthy awe of God? Without awe, we cannot live in obedience to him and we cannot understand his love. Who do you need to come alongside like Timothy and Epaphroditus? Church, God is calling us to be his people. I just want to challenge us to lean into him.